0: Welcome to the Capital Club podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn.
1: Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club podcast. I'm here with Rebecca Finley-Szydlowski. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me, Brian. I'm really excited to be here today.
1: Rebecca specializes in strategy, governance, and leadership development for family offices and family businesses across North America. She's particularly gifted at working with the next generation, next gens, which we're going to talk quite a bit about here. Coming up within a family's ecosystem, helping them build the appropriate skills and capacity to contribute effectively, and also understanding how they'd actually like to, which is not always a question that gets asked to a lot of people. So, Let's get kind of definitional here. If you could, next gen is a term that I first heard when I came in the family office scene 15 years ago. It used to refer to anybody who was like 40 or younger. That age range just kept creeping up as <laughs> baby boomers live longer and don't retire. And so now I think it's such a broad term that it's helpful if we can rate it a little bit for purposes of this conversation.
2: Yeah, definitely. A great place to start, Brian. So I'm a next-gen myself. I work within a family business under my mom, and I'm in my early 30s. And when I think about the next-gens that we work with, there's really three buckets that I put them in. It's interesting you mentioned going up to 40 years old. I kind of give the cutoff now at about 35, because I think at some point you have to let go of that term next-gen and just accept you're the older generation. But the groups that I tend to work with are, I would say, first and foremost, the young kids, which are really years zero to 11 years old. I'd say the next group that really comes forward would be your teens, which I would say 12 to 16, because I feel like some 12-year-olds I've worked with definitely have that teen attitude already, which is pretty interesting. Mm. And then young adults is really 17 to, I would say 35. And why I would put 17-year-olds with a 35-year-old is that I think 17-year-olds know a lot more and can contribute a lot more than you think that they could. So I've actually had the privilege of working with every single one of those groups I'd say that I have pros and cons to each of them, which I know we'll get into a little bit later. But that's a lot of what my job is focused around is how do I engage that age bracket over those three decades?
1: And so within that context, that I think it's helpful to have the different cohorts spelled out. And I, I agree, the umbrella term next gen should be reserved for people who are kind of below a certain threshold. But the challenge right now is there's this middle group, right, where people like my age who are 40... You know, we should be theoretically stepping into a leadership position, but the generation above us has decided to hold on longer than they anticipated, either they don't want to retire, or again, they're just living longer than anyone thought they would. Is it, is it just, how do you bucket them? Or do you, do you just kind of say, hey, your time has already come and gone. I'm going to focus on this younger cohort. How do you think about it in your own mind?
2: Man, that's a really good question. I'm thinking about some of the families we're working with right now, which is that exact problem where you have this patriarch that's you know, creeping up to their 70s, even almost their 80s, and just won't let go. They still want to be involved actively in the business every single day. And, and you're right, you do have this interesting band, which is really where my mom plays too. She's about 65. And for, so from those 35 to 65-year-olds, what do you do with them? I mean, I would say, Brian, a lot of the times what happens is the patriarch just suddenly passes away or the matriarch and you're kind of left in this situation that you're playing catch up, which is really too bad because in my mind, you should have a succession plan in place for that band you're talking about way in advance. And then what's happening is you then have the pressure from the millennials and the Gen Zs coming up behind. And how do you start engaging them? Because we know the old adage that it's like shirt sleeves to shirt leaves in three generations. So a lot of the families we work with have those three generations co-mingling already. I would say you have to get into the kind of work that we do early on. You have to effectively engage that matriarch or patriarch. There's a lot of great roles that they can play within the family governance structure. Quite often, we find that we successfully move them onto an advisory board, so you get them out of that day-to-day operations, but they still can meaningfully contribute, come into the office. They haven't completely lost the sense of the business that they built. However, you do need to start really having those hard conversations of how do you make way for those 35 to 65-year-olds so that they can really take over because that time goes by even really fast. And so if you can't get that succession plan even in place, you have no hope for the gens coming behind them.
1: Yeah, I agree. So I know in our pre-call, you have a specific focus within called like 15 to 30 age range, which is such an interesting population set. Yeah. What is it about that? world? I mean, you're a little bit north of it. Is it because it's been proximate to your experience or what is it about that cohort that you like engaging with so much?
2: I think that there's not a lot of advisors that can relate to that group. I mean, even at age 32, I'm still a lot closer to them than someone who is a family office advisor at 65. And a lot of the clients that we work with, they just have a really big problem having their next generation connect with an old, pale and stale person. That's true. Next gens fascinate me because there's so many challenges that face them, but I think overall, I'm very optimistic. I think what we forget to think about is that even though you're born into a place of privilege, these next gens have a lot of anxiety, especially about thinking that they can't fill the shoes of the people that have come before them. I've definitely gone through this myself trying to fill into my mom and really recognizing through a lot of her own coaching that I have to be my own person. But I do recognize that a lot of the next gens we feel with have a lot of they feel like they'll, they won't be successful, which I think is really too bad. I think the second thing, Brian, that interests me about them is that they're really smart, but there's this massive problem of having a lack of basic financial literacy or governance training, and they're just expected to somehow succeed into this business and take it over one day, but they don't even understand how a board operates or what governance looks like or basic business strategy. And that's where I love working because you can get those conversations going at a very young age. And I think people are much more interested than we give them credit for. I'd say the other thing that I find fascinating about them is that quite different families deal with the magnitude of wealth they have in very different ways. And what I mean is that some families are very transparent. You know, They have that conversation with their child at age 12. They're going to release all the information and explain how wealthy they are. But I'd say more often than not, families are quite secretive about it. And then one family we worked with, the patriarch had suddenly just passed away and his siblings hadn't. His children had no idea what they were worth. And that had been so concealed from them that I think that that magnitude almost was a, like an avalanche. And it took a lot of years to clean that up and get them successful. And I think a lot of that could have been avoided. I'd say just three more points, though, that I find really interesting working with them is that there's a lot of opportunities that people maybe hadn't contemplated before for next gens to give back within a family governance ecosystem. And I think you just have to be creative. These next gens, especially by Gen 3, They have this position of power and privilege that they don't often quite think about the opportunities of building a new job for themselves or building a brand new company. And I don't think they're given that leeway. I'd say the last two points is that a lot of these next gens I find fascinating is that they come from these really high profile families. We've worked with some of the largest ones in Canada. But they don't have the network or the connections that you think that they'd have, or they really want to branch away from what their parents have and kind of build up their own network. But they don't know how to do that. And so that's where I find I love working. Brian is connecting with them then with great people. And finally, I'd say that they don't spend a lot of time on their ikigai. And maybe your listeners have heard of this concept before. Maybe they haven't, but it's a fantastic thinking that comes out of Japan, which is really, what's your reason for getting out of bed in the morning? If money's no object, what are you actually good at and what can you give back to the world? And I think once you have those hard conversations with next gens, their ideas will really surprise you. They're just needing more guidance and assistance.
1: So I want to go back and revisit some of those touch points that you referenced, one being the anxiety component. In my experience, anxiety typically comes from the fear of the future or the unknown, and a lack of education or exposure to something—a big challenge that I've seen within a lot of families is—and you reference this—it's very hard for next gens, especially within larger, prominent, multigenerational families, to have their own identity outside of the family because so much of their worth and their opinions wrapped up with their last name or with their family relationships. So. How do you carve out space or be intentional with allowing next gens to self-identify with something not associated with the family?
2: Yeah, great question. So I'd go back to the three segments I talked about at the beginning because I think you can start very early on, very effectively. But I think overall my recommendation back is they have to fail you can't just let them always win and get away with everything because I think I see some quite entitled next gens that have just never understood what it's like to build something and fail at it, that they have this almost false sense of I'm invincible. I think that's wrong. I think that that's where you set your next gens up to fail right away. I'd say with the families we work with, as they become increasingly sophisticated, you can implement some really fantastic tools that we've done ourselves with the families we work with. Say, for example, the zero to 11-year-olds. They're coming up in a family. You're trying to teach them about leadership. You're trying to engage them with older generations too. How can you do that? We really successfully implemented, which sounds ridiculous, but it's so effective, a gingerbread competition. And so every holiday season, you'd actually put... Well, I was in charge of the roster, putting you know the different people on the different teams. And they were a combination of employees from the companies that the family owned, as well as older generations within the family themselves. But they were always led by a younger gen, so a zero to 11-year-old. Obviously, a four-year-old wasn't leading it, but we'd kind of start that at about seven or eight. And it was fascinating to me, this experiment in a way, because the first year we ran it with one family, the 11-year-old was super mad at me that I hadn't put him on a team with his dad. And I said sorry, but in life, you don't always get to choose who you're with and you're going to be fine. You have the president of the home building company on your team, which is interesting because they lost. And that kid was so upset. He broke his gingerbread house and his brother had won, which was such fascinating to me to actually see this kid fail. But I think that that taught him a lot. And in the second year, I noticed a level of maturity that he hadn't had the first year where he lost again, but he was much more gracious. So I think, Brian, activities like that, you can really put some fantastic learning around them that's very intentional and deliberate. I think the key point is you have to be intentional and people are not thinking creatively enough early on on how to engage people. Then you start to think about your teens. So these are a really interesting group I think financial literacy is so prominently lacking, and I'm sure you've probably experienced that too. Quite a lot of families will put together an investment council. We're not in charge of wealth management. That's not my area at all, but we help set up a lot of the governance behind that. And what's interesting, if you put a teen in charge of you know, running a council meeting, they slowly learn how to run an effective meeting, which sounds really boring, but it's actually great because you can pull in fantastic movies. There's so many great ones on Netflix. I know another family of ours had used the Fire Festival that really You know, Gong Show of a festival that had fallen apart, but they'd watch it as a group and then talk through. Well, what went well? What could we have done better? And then they start looking at deals together. But well, how do we invest in different companies? I think a lot of the times people assume next gens, maybe particularly women too, are not interested in investing or the stocks or anything like that because they don't show interest. But I think a lot of the times the way that people approach that is just very old school and very limiting and seems like an old boys club. So you. Would be surprised about how many women in these family offices at a young age are interested in investing, but have never been approached with it in a more accessible way. I'd say just two other ways for these teens is that you can get them involved in your foundation. If your family has a foundation board, that's a really great way to get them thinking about philanthropy and giving back at a young age. And we've also seen business cases, too, where at an annual family retreat, next gens could be put in charge of putting together a business case of why do I want to donate to this particular cause or even to this company that I'm thinking of setting up. The last group I'll talk about just for engaging them is, again, that band of kind of your 17-year-olds to 35-year-olds. Again, I put them in positions of leadership. You know, a co-chair of the Family Foundation, that's pretty serious to run that kind of meeting. But they have to be fun. And I think a lot of the times people assume that they know how to run an engaging meeting. And I'd say a lot of our group's work is actually teaching them how to do that. Because you know the the saying, death by meeting. (laughs) A lot of meetings are just really boring. And so I think there's ways to make it fun. The last position I'll say too, though, is that there's an emerging trend we see that a lot of these families are starting to put in place what I would call a shadow board, which is different than an advisory board. But these shadow boards are comprised of solely next gens to really start advising their family companies and it gives them the opportunity to think about the strategy, ask those hard questions, and really understand how a board runs. So you're softly teaching people about governance and strategy, and I think that that's really a successful way of getting people stoked about their families' businesses.
1: You know you're talking to somebody who's from Canada when they reference Gong Show in one of their responses. (laughs) I love it. It's a junior reference points.
0: Does the current market environment have you reevaluating your investment strategy? There may be alternative opportunities you have yet to consider to safeguard your portfolio. We've created an exclusive guide for Capital Club listeners featuring the top alternative investments to consider when strategizing for inflation. Download it today at excelsiorgp.com download to learn how you can protect your portfolio, diversify your assets, and take advantage of tax benefits in today's market. That's excelsiorgp.com download.
1: It seems like a lot of the themes that we talk on the show with many people, you know, engagement early, communication, transparency. That's one of the ones that I want to go to next. A lot of next gens with their relationship with social media, with how kind of open they are with information. How do they establish trust within their peers? And how are families dealing with, quote unquote, the number or telling people the number or the org chart? when that takes place because communication, information, transparency is so much more challenging in today's environment.
2: Yeah. There's a lot to unpack here. I'd say, first of all, most of the families we deal with are still very under the radar. So they want to stay that way. And I think that that's great. They'll be very transparent to their next gens about their magnitude of wealth. I think that there's this unwritten understanding though, within those next gens that they keep their mouths closed. I'd say that this also, often causes the next gen zone to feel quite isolated. Cause I know some of the families that we work with again, you know, how can a peer of theirs understand why they have to attend a board meeting like the, the, their peer doesn't even know what a board meeting is. So I think what we need to do to help them is to also help them build network People in similar positions to have an opportunity to share those challenges. And we've started to do, to do that too, because I think that their peers just to a certain extent can't relate. I'm obviously in a special position because I, I know intimately what's happening And so I'm I'm happy to listen and talk with them. But there is, to a certain point, it's really helpful for them to have peers. When it comes to transparency, I'd say that we actually have seen quite a few families put in place social media policies that limit how much they can express themselves in what their family does. So for example, one family we worked with, it was a really interesting conversation where, you know, if you have your family's name on an institutional building, like a hospital or a school of business then you can't necessarily post whatever you want on social media. And so this family had some really fascinating conversations about what is and not okay, especially if you're considered family. That happened. Some of the outcomes of those situations are people will change their names and try to distance themselves from the family to gain more autonomy. I think that these are the kind of hard conversations that families don't often think through, but are very important.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a very hard situation and it is going to be family of family dependent. I'd like to revisit the what gets you out of bed in the morning question. I know a lot of families like our own engage younger people within the board initially just because there's more comfort there. kind of feels like it's a little bit lower stakes and a little bit easier to access as an on-ramp into these bigger conversations. But what are you seeing and feeling from your clients and maybe your own family on what actually does motivate and engage the next-gen community?
2: Treating them like they're an adult and actually smart. And I'd say that some of the boards of these families, if you have a really young director, early 20s, you'd be surprised at the kind of questions that they're asking, Brian. And I think that they're just not given the latitude because they're often dismissed. Again, this idea of a shadow board is so new to a lot of people, but if you look at a really fantastic Harvard business case, they compared Gucci and Prada over the same time period. And what happened was is that Gucci put in place a shadow board of millennials that were coming up in its company, and they actually eclipsed Prada significantly because they had that kind of boots on the ground understanding of their key stakeholders So I'd say it's in the best interest of a family, and it sounds awesome that your family is already doing that, to engage them in those board meetings right away, but to give them the opportunity to ask questions. I think that someone just being silent and listening, there's obviously a role to observe, but you want to ask them for their input because what really makes me stoked about this next generation is that you know they're increasingly passionate about ESG initiatives. They're really demanding not just to have a company for the sake of making money, they are thinking about what is the environmental, social, and governance practices that we're inputting, they do have a huge thirst to learn. And I think that their fresh perspective will ask questions that you would never think to ask. And I think that that comes back to an ageism problem. I'm doing some governance training right now in Canada, and I'm the youngest one in my program by a long shot. And I think that a huge problem we have with corporate governance is that we're not letting younger people in quick enough to start getting them equipped at the board table. And so those are some of the things that I see.
1: Yeah, I mean... Uh I agree with you. I work with a lot of younger people, Gen Z, etc. And, you know, I think there's a huge misappreciation for just how great the generation is. I mean, they seem to really care. They work hard. I think they've got pretty good balance in their lives compared to other people. And so I'm very hopeful. And I think we're really well positioned, honestly, just as an economy and as a culture in general.
2: I was going to say, I do have one more point, though, just to add, which is really interesting. And maybe you've seen this conversation as well. But I think the next gens really have an important role to play when you think about your family's company or companies. And there's a really interesting conversation about legacy businesses and how do you hold on to these or not. Because I often find with clients of ours, they're holding on to a business that the business case doesn't make sense. But the family history behind it, the emotional ties are what keep them Holding on to it. So, this could maybe be a golf course or a retail business. And I think what next gens will do that will surprise you is that they'll often have completely new ideas of new businesses to start altogether. And I wish families would give these next gens more latitude to really explore these new ideas. They could be companies that are adjacent and complementary to the core family businesses, or they could be something in an entirely new field, maybe like esports, or I don't know, something like that. And so I think that would be the other comment I would have is that I don't think older generations really sit down and ask the next gens, what are you actually interested in doing? And I think that they assume quite often either they're going to take over the existing family legacy business or they're just going to do something else completely different outside of the family. I don't think it's so black and white. I think there's a lot of opportunity to build something within that family governance structure that could be quite complimentary and exciting.
1: Yeah, I agree. I've got two boys, nine and six, and the early childhood development professional that is my wife will often tell me, you know, if you're having trouble with engaging with the kids, it's because you're probably talking about something that they don't care about. And if you just spend a little bit of time understanding what they're interested in these days and you actually pay attention and listen, and learn a little bit. They'll talk to you for as you know, as long as you're willing to to sit down and, and hang out with them. It's just that oftentimes, as a parent or older generation, we think a certain subject matter is compelling, whereas it just simply is not.
2: Definitely. It's funny that you say that. I'm the oldest of three siblings, and I'm the only one that works with my mom. And when I was a kid, I I had no idea what a management consultant was, and I thought it was really boring. And what was interesting is I think with the three of us, she slowly just fed a little bit of the kind of work that she did to us very early on. I remember when I was 12 years old, I helped her run a massive transformation. I mean, I didn't do that much. (laughs) I just did some data entry, but I felt very seriously taken, and I loved to go to work with my mom. It didn't stick with my brother and sister, and I think that that's bound to happen. There'll always be different interests, but I think you'd be surprised at who grasps onto it or not. I think that starting young is definitely key, though.
1: So within the next generation, there is certainly a thirst for experience and less virtual, more shared experiential activities. How are families doing it the right way in terms of retreats? in-person activities, meetings, especially in a post-COVID world?
2: Yeah, great point and question. They're being very thoughtful and intentional. So the same way that a company would run an annual strategic planning retreat, we see very sophisticated families doing the exact same thing. But it's a little bit different where that there's a bit more of an interest in family team building mixed with also intentional learning. And so some of these families, what we'll see is that they'll have you know outside speakers come in on very specific topics. It could be on philanthropy. It could be on credit card point hacking is one I've seen too. It could be on financial literacy, someone else from a different family office speaking about their own family. So you have always that mix of external expertise coming in to bring in fresh thinking, but then you also have opportunities during those family retreats for next gens to take on key leadership roles. And so I went to school for history and English. I really wanted to be a history professor I didn't quite follow that route, but an area that we see really emerging, especially coming out of the States, is actually family history. And so this is a really unique opportunity for that next generation to become involved in where did we really come from? And I've loved working in this space because the families we've worked with, they've really taken this by the horns and done some fantastic things and built out their family trees and made interactive family trees where, Brian, you could click on your picture on the tree and that it gives an overview of everything you've done in your life. We've also seen... Next-gens then have a project at their family retreat where they're in charge of researching their great-grandmother who originally started this XYZ business and then presenting to the rest of the family. I think that that connection is so important and, again, something that a lot of these families could benefit from doing but haven't thought of that yet. They weren't just successful overnight. There were some kind of conditions that came before them in previous generations that lined them up for that success. So a lot of those conversations then, again, about values and vision and where are we going? I know a lot of people dismiss those as kind of like the soft skills that are not important, but I would argue that those are some of the most important conversations a family could have to really keep them together. So that'd be something else we've seen. The last thing I've seen too is that next gens are put onto really intentional travel trips. So they'll go to other countries and they'll go to specific you know, family businesses in other countries and do a walk around about those families' companies and learn from them to kind of broaden their network again, too, and see how other families are working. I'd say what's really interesting is that the majority of the world's companies are family-run. So there's very little literature, for the most part, compared to corporate or public companies that we can learn from. And so I'd say what's really neat is that we're trying to publish more and more what these families are doing in terms of best practices to learn from each other. And you'd be quite surprised at how similar many of these families' problems are and so I'd say the last thing that families can really benefit from is really trying to learn from others that are further ahead than them because they can get so much further faster by just hearing the other trials and tribulations of others.
1: So that goes back to an earlier point you made. <clears throat> it's really important for these groups to establish networks, right? Peer-to-peer affinity groups. But I know there are conferences and but with social media, it's very hard to know who's real and who's not. I agree. I mean. How do you do that in practice, especially in an increasingly global business ecosystem?
2: Yeah, good question. I'm not sure that I have a great answer for that yet because I think, again, when we think a lot about these family offices, people are really in awe of the the big names globally. Like, I want to go to that conference because I'll get to hear this really massive family that's been around for eight generations. And I'm not taking away from those families. I think it's really great that they've been able to maintain momentum for that long. However, they're a very small niche of families, and most of the families are at that lower level of wealth, which is still quite exceptional. I'd say a family office from twenty-five million up is where we would we'd would start. That I, I wish that there was more emphasis put on kind of that twenty-five to maybe three hundred million range, like even lower than that, because I think that those families are again massive economic drivers. They have so much potential but where do they go to learn? And we're kind of asking that same question. I'm not sure. And I think that everyone is very secretive about, well, these are my clients. I don't want to share them with someone else. And I understand that. And so I wish that there was more academic institutions that were doing these kind of courses. Mums actually co-created a course down in California at the Drucker School of Management with her former Harvard business prof, Dr. Vijay Sathe. And they created a class called Managing the Family Business. And this class has been really cool, but quite under the radar, Brian. But Every class has different case studies, either from our own clients that have been completely masked or they come in and present themselves and some of Vijay's clients as well. And I think in a peer group like that, you learn so much. And those groups are quite often, you know, EMBA students, MBA students, practitioners that work for families or families themselves. I think we need more forums like that. I also see the other trend that's happening in academia is that most of the literature currently published is really patriarchal in its view. And what's interesting about our connection with the Drucker School of Management, for anyone that's familiar with Peter Drucker, the father of modern management, he wasn't focused so much on a top-down approach when it came to organizing high-performing teams. He was much more consensus-based, focusing on your strengths and building knowledge. And that's really more of a matriarchal approach. So we are trying to put out more thought leadership in that way, because I'd say that that is a much more successful way to engage these next gens and families overall to survive those generations is you have to be slower, you have to focus on your strengths, and you have to focus on knowledge building. Without that, I think you're dead in the water.
1: I agree. And you are starting to see more and more institutions in, in the States, Northwestern, Stanford, et cetera, have family office or family business oriented curriculum and and programs, which is encouraging but i do think there could be a lot more what are maybe one or or the top few things that are keeping next gens up at night these days
2: yeah the great question too i think it goes back to that earlier point about anxiety i've seen some next gens just break down and just say like i'm not going to be successful like there's no way i can build the kind of level business that my parents built i don't have the skills And then I think that they become very indifferent. And that's almost like a defense mechanism that, well, if I just go in the completely opposite direction and feel completely disinterested, then I don't have a target on my back anymore. So I've seen next gens act out that way. I think it's really important, again, for families to go slow and really listen to what are my next gens interested in and what are they strong at and what could they do? So I think that that anxiety is something we can't dismiss. We have to recognize that it's there. I think family history, Brian, is a really great way to, again, address that pain point because if they get past the myth of, you know, my great-grandfather was so unbelievably successful and you learn more about, well, he almost lost the lease on his first building that he bought or whatever. I think that those are the kind of stories that families could really benefit from sharing is when did it go wrong for previous generations so that you don't have this unbelievable amount of legacy on your shoulders that you're never going to be able to live up to it. I would love families to do more of that. I think the other challenges is that so many families deal with wealth transfer differently. Some of them say, "You know, I made all the money. I'm not going to give any to my kids. It's up to them to make it themselves. I'm not sure that that's exactly a great transition point. I think a lot of these families to build so much wealth might've been absent from raising their kids as closely as they could have. So I think that there's a lot of resentment that could grow there. I've seen that happen too. So I'd say families can become quite resentful. I know this one family where basically said, only one of my two children is going to get the business. They basically have to fight for it. I think that that's really unhealthy. And that causes a lot of people to get a lot of anxiety very early on. I think that next gens are also very wary that they don't trust a lot of people. And I understand that a lot of the compensation in our sectors with service providers are based on referral fees and things like that, which is why we don't do any of that. I think that you got to try and eliminate some of those hidden agendas to just try and be much more objective when you're helping these families. Because I think these next gens, they either trust too easily or don't trust at all. And I think that that's sad too, because again, there's so much that they can learn from great people in the sector that know a lot more than they do.
0: Well,
1: Rebecca, I think that's a good way to start winding the conversation down. Thank you so much for joining us. And for all of our listeners, please do leave a comment and rating and let us know your favorite part of this discussion. If folks are interested in engaging with you or your firm, what's the best way for them to get in touch?
2: They can send me an email. I can give you that so you can maybe include it in the chat.
1: Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes for sure. And then the firm in terms of the work you do and the scope, we didn't really get, we kind of jumped right into the next gen conversation, but would love to hear a little bit more background on that.
2: Sure. So as I mentioned, I work with my mom. So she's been in this space now for about 40 years and we work primarily in the areas of strategy, governance, and leadership development. And so what that would really look like for a family, there's so many different entry points. You know, Right now we're in a bunch of families where they just want to engage their next gen. So it's really developing strategies about what could that look like, maybe developing a shadow board or an advisory board or something like that. There's so many different problems, I would say. Basically, once a family has a problem that they feel like a lawyer is too expensive to go to, I feel like we're often called in to kind of think through these different governance structures and strategy. That's a bit of what we do.
1: Yeah, that's great. And I, I read an article that you had written for Canadian family offices. And that's how we initially connected on on LinkedIn. So if people will include the email in the show notes and then you are active on LinkedIn, so that's another way for people to get in touch. One question that we ask people that come on the show is do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life?
2: Oh, that's a really great question. I'd say actually with my partner and I, we always reflect on what was something really good that happened today. And I, I love that because you take that moment that. Even if you have a really bad day, it's always really great to just reflect on what did you learn today that you didn't know before? And I, I love that daily sharing that him and I do.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. Well, Re- Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great. Keep up the good work. I look forward to keeping up with you over LinkedIn and definitely encourage people to reach out. You've got some great articles and you're doing good work within a much needed space. So keep it up and I look forward to staying in touch.
2: Awesome. Thank you so much, Brian. Have a great day.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?